and welcome to the Football New South Wales Community Podcast, covering the great people, organisations and initiatives from around the football family. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri, and has been feature in our podcast series so far. We love to talk to the associations, and today our guest and co-host of this episode is the CEO of Central Coast Football, Alex Bergen. Alex, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. So how long have you been in this role at Central Coast Football as the CEO? So I'm back in my second stint with Central Coast Football. I've been the CEO for 18 months, uh, but I worked as the competitions manager way back in 2012 at Central Coast Football uh, and in between went down to Melbourne, had some state and national roles with the AFL, uh, and then, yeah, then I'll come back to the round ball game back at Plume Park. So an association that you know quite well at a number of levels. How many many staff in the building, how many sort of uh, people in the orbit of your organisation at the moment? Yeah, we've got nine staff that work at Central Coast Football between full-time and part-time. We've got a heap of casual staff that run our hospitality near our canteen at Plume Park as well. We're lucky, fortunate to run our own venue and manage our own venue there at Plume Park with three fields and our offices... Uh, and, and our hospitality there as well. Uh, we've got 14,500 players, we've got 1,200 coaches, we've got 250 referees uh, and you know a couple of thousand volunteers that make the game tick day-to-day for us on the coast. So I was going to ask you for some of those key numbers because the Central Coast means very different things to people who live there as opposed to people who just talk about it in abstraction. So what actually is your catchment area? Give us sort of the, the territory and the region that those 14,000 players are drawn from. Yeah, so we're everything north of the Mooney, pretty much. So our most southern club is Yamina on the peninsula, and we've got a few clubs on the peninsula, and we go all the way up to Gwandalin in the north, which is the boundary between football New South Wales and northern New South Wales football. So before you get into the Newcastle NPL competitions, we reach all the way up to Newcastle, basically. And in terms of expansion, like, is the association going to expand west? Is it growth from within? Is it consolidation of what you've got? Like, what would you say the growth profile is of your region at the moment, given that there's a lot of exploitable land, I imagine? Mm-hmm. Land is at a premium. Uh, we have a lot of regional development happening at the north end of the coast. So our Wungara, Wadalba, that kind of region on the central coast, there's lots of housing development up there. We need more fields and green space to follow with that housing development because it uh, hasn't been forthcoming, but our next club will come from that north end of the coast. Uh, we're at saturation point. Um, we call it the, the golden triangle of Kingcumber, Avoca, Terry. There are three, three of our four biggest clubs, um, and they've only got sort of two and a half, three fields between them. So uh, there's a lot of saturation of players in the east sort of section of our game. Uh, so yeah, we need to find more space to play in. This comes up a lot with the associations we talk to, whether they're they're landlocked or whether they're on the outer fringes of, of the Sydney suburbs, um, or in your case, a you know, would you say semi-regional association? Like, how, how do you define yourselves as how you look at your association? In, given that you are sort of at the top end of uh, football New South Wales and just below that northern New South Wales border. Yeah, Coasties like to think that we run our own game up at the coast. I think we like to think we're a little bit special. Uh, as soon as you cross that bridge, there's something different in the water up in the coast. So, you know, sometimes it benefits us to be a regional or rural area and we take that where, where we can. But in reality, most of our participants, you know, if they don't live and work on the coast, they live on the coast and work in the city. So, um, you know, we're not that really that far away. Only took me 45 to get down to Valentine today to record this with you guys. So it's, it's not that far away. 
So before we get into some of the programs that your association is running, the halo effect has been particularly shiny for your region in the last six months. The Central Coast Mariners won the A-League women's, uh, the A-League men's. They returned to the A-League women's and like the rest of the country, you had the Women's World Cup. So as far as what's coming in at the top of the funnel, demand for the game, interest in the game, are you feeling it? Are you noticing it at your association level? Absolutely. We run summer football uh, at Plume Park at our complex, and this year we've sold out. Like many other associations, uh, we're full. We've got over a 1,000 players playing summer football on our three synthetic pitches at Plume Park. Um, you know, the want to participate in our code has never been greater. Mariners being successful, W League coming in, Women's World Cup, Men's World Cup, it's all, you know, it's a perfect storm of people wanting to participate in our code, which is great. Mm. These are things that we will touch on as part of the chat today. But let's get into some of those programs because uh, Coast Kick Mini Ruse is something in particular that your association is quite proud of uh, that you are running. Tell us what it entails. Give us uh, the information about the Coast Kick Mini Ruse pack. Yeah, so next year we're going to have uh, over 2,500 footballers receive a Coast Kick Mini Ruse pack. So it's a it's an idea that I've brought with me back from the AFL. So they run an Kick pack, so it's a similar type of idea and we're, we're blatantly ripping it off to provide some value to our members. So the idea is all under five, six and sevens, um, they'll receive a ball, uh, shin pads, water bottle and a bag to carry it in. It'll have their club logo on it. It'll have our partner's logos on it, have the CCF logo on it and a space to write their name on it so everyone knows which bag is which. Um, it's it's in partnership with our great friends at Wang Lee's group who have come to the party to help out with the cost associated with that. We're trying to deliver value back to our players, basically. It's a great point because often that cost of playing argument is something that media use to whack soccer with, and they always hold up Aussie rules, and in particular Kick as the gold standard because they give you everything, and, and obviously the game can afford to get their grassroots players in and provide them with as much as possible. So in terms of balancing the books and also assessing the you know the cost-benefit cost analysis of doing this, how tricky was it? And, and then how easy was it for you to communicate the value of making sure that players at that entry-level age, you know, have something they can call their own that the association's given them rather than having to self-fund it immediately the moment they walk through the door and start playing? As we know, uh, with the changes to active kids' vouchers again next year, football and sport in general is only going to become more expensive um, for people, you know, at all age groups, but particularly that entry level. So for us on the coast, we want to reduce the barrier to entry. If mum and dad don't have to go out and buy, you know, 60 or $70 worth of balls and shin pads and bags and other things that you'd need to participate in our sport, and we can provide that through our great partnerships, then that's just a common sense approach for us. We Everything we do is trying to deliver value back to our players. So this is an easy way to give back to them, hopefully garner some new young kiddies that want to come and, and participate and mum and dad can see that, you know, they won't have many more costs than their registration costs just to get in and start playing the sport. How many players do you think this will impact in 2024? So we had 2,400 uh, players this year uh, that would fit in that age group. We're expecting that to bump up at least a couple of hundred. So we're budgeting on 26 or 2,700 players next year to receive a Coast Kickback. Blue Sky thinking, if you had the clubs and they had the space to accommodate the demand, what do you realistically, what do you think that number could be? If you were in front of the, the ministers lobbying for more field space, 
what what number would you actually use if you if your clubs yeah you know, if you had the necessary volunteers and pitches to actually go and accommodate the demand? Assuming you know our volunteers and and everything else was you know up to scratch, we could easily double that number. I feel green well, okay. green space uh, volunteers are the two big restrictions. Obviously, we're not dissimilar to other associations in that regard, uh, but we could easily you know be up to five thousand plus in that in that age group. You know, Central Coast is a growing area. Lots of families commuting from Sydney and moving to the coast. So our growth numbers, uh, we're looking at three to 5,000 players over the next 10 years growth regardless. So plenty of opportunity. Now, you mentioned uh, the the uh, bottles and bags had space for the partners of uh, Central Coast football. How important is that commerciality? What are you finding with regards to local businesses, but also football-aligned businesses wanting to support the association at grassroots level? Yeah, we have a great suite of partners that help us deliver football on the Central Coast, and all of our partnerships uh, have either something to do with on-field or off-field activities that our participants are involved in. So, you know, Wong League's our major partner. Uh, they're a great community organisation. They've got 11 venues, um, eight of which are on the coast, and they've been a great resource for us coming on last year um, to be able to deliver things like this Coast Kick Pack, to be able to deliver things like our North v South All-Star Games and a few other bits and pieces. All of our partners have something to do with football, though. So we've got Summit Sport that have come on that provide all our balls, kit, accessories and anything that's on-field training. Um, they're involved with more than half of our clubs as well as, as um Equipment supplies, um, so they're great value as well. And we've got our local brewery, Hawkesbury Brewery, as well. Uh, they are the official supplier to the bar at Plume Park, which is a very popular place come finals time. Everyone gets up to the bar on the hill and, and, and has a Hawkesbury as well. So to have local support and to have partnerships that can deliver value straight back to the punter uh, is really critical to our success. And how much of that is, you, you mentioned football sort of aligned, but how important is the culture of uh, your clubs, the environment they're creating, the experience of both playing, being a parent, being a referee, you know, what's the heat check on on the things you've put in place to make sure that, you know, a partner knows that they're protected, that they're not going to appear in local papers or local news for referee abuse or any of the other things that competitive sport can kind of throw up. So how important is that management of culture and environment to make sure that you're giving your partners the best possible opportunity to have them up in lights for the right reason? Yeah, uh, there's a benefit to being involved with the biggest participation sport on the Central Coast, but certainly in Australia. Uh Storytelling, I think, is always the key aspect, and that's what I always talk to potential partners or our current partners is we've got an unrivaled ability to create good stories and goodwill around football, uh, whether it be, you know, little under fives that couldn't otherwise play football but they can now because they've got a coast kick pack or it's our over 35s that got a case of Hawkesbury beer at their grand final because they won the grand final and they're all old boys that have come back for one last season and, and had a crack. There's There's opportunities to tell all different types of stories in our code and that's the that's the benefit for our partners too right we've talked about a bit of uh, cross code intellectual property but what about other associations other football governing bodies like who do you look to to see what they're doing but also who do you find is on the phone to you or looking at you or who have you met maybe in the industry that says oh yeah we, we looked at what you're doing we looked at your website and maybe you didn't even know that they were trying to copy what you were doing on the central coast like how do you find the sharing of ip amongst other football associations 
Yeah, I think it's great. We've got great collaboration and I'm often on the phone to the other CEOs of our neighbouring associations to see what everyone's doing and how they're delivering value back to their participants as well. Uh, I've found that some of the, the smaller codes and smaller sports on the Central Coast often come to us for advice on, you know, not only partnership stuff, but governance-related things, club operations, and some other bits and pieces. So we're happy to share all of that information. Obviously, with scale comes a good ability to, you know, we've been there and done that in most of these aspects. So to be able to share that information with other sports is, we're happy to do so. And we're happy to bring all sports together. We will loop back around to some of the big picture thinking later on in the podcast. Stay with us, though. We're about to bring in our next guest on the Football New South Wales Community Podcast. We're going to talk about another very important initiative with our first guest coming up right after this break. Day after day, Kappa rewrites the concept of sportswear. Kappa means teamwork, past, present, and future. Kappa never stops because winning starts within. Two people, one brand. Kappa. Welcome back to the Football New South Wales Community Podcast. We've got the CEO of Central Coast Football, Alex Bergen, still here, and we have our first guest for us today. It is Kirsten Smith from the Daughters and Dads Football Program. Kirsten, hello. Hi, how are you going? Good, thank you. Now, I would love to, firstly, before we get into the program, hear a bit more about you. How long have you been with Football New South Wales? I've been with Football New South Wales for just over 12 months now, so um, with the Legacy Football Program. And, yeah, I'm based at Northern um, at Spears Point, but I get to work across both member federations to um, bring this amazing football program to the community. So uh, you mentioned just over 12 months. Is this uh, your first job in football, sports administration? Give us a bit of your background and your uh, history in sport, where you've come from. So I'm actually a cricketer. Uh, I worked at Cricket New South Wales for a number of years in casual um, and as a participation officer. And then I got an opportunity to work at the Newcastle Jets in the football um, administration operations side. Um, and they're aligned with Northern New South Wales football. And then I was introduced to Pete Haynes and, yeah, was offered this position there. Interesting, very brief tangent, because all through sort of the early to mid-2010s, football was holding up cricket as the gold standard of women's sport in this country. So given your hands-on involvement in both sports, have you noticed the gap sort of closing? The cricketers still do amazing things. They get great TV numbers. But to see the Matildas have a little taste of that at the World Cup and then the Olympic qualifiers, that they continue to get huge audiences and kind of build their profile. How satisfying is it to see the two sports you're involved in now probably sort of neck and neck, one, two, as maybe the the, uh, groundbreaking and market-leading sports for women and girls in the country? It's incredible. I was actually at the 2020 World Cup for the women's cricket and and I worked at the Jets and I saw the crowds um, and unfortunately they, they probably weren't there at the time. And then to see the FIFA Women's World Cup on home soil and the crowds we had, it was just amazing. And off the back of that, already having record numbers at A-League Women's Games, I think it's, you know, football brings a lot to participants and their families and it's great to see the recognition, particularly in, in the women's game. So let's drill down into Daughters and Dads, whose team, uh, you mentioned that you're based out of uh, the northern New South Wales, um, whose team are you in and, and sort of what, what uh, sort of staff do you orbit with within the Football New South Wales infrastructure for this particular program? Yep, so my manager is Helen Armson and, and Hayley Todd, so in the legacy team there and... At Northern, we've got Annalise Rosnell, so 
Annalise and Helen, they're both the head of the legacy programs. Um, and I'm lucky enough that I can yeah, work across both member federations to yeah, bring this program to the community. So before we get into the, the program, Alex, when you hear the word legacy, particularly when it pertains to the World Cup, is, this, is it a word you use a lot in your association or is it a word you hear a lot? And what does it actually mean to you as far as what you can practically apply to the game? I think Everyone's talking legacy over the last two years now, right? And it's front, forefront of all of our conversations, all of our club meetings, all of the conversations that I'm having with clubs at the moment is around how we can leverage this legacy funding because events like this, whilst we might have some on the horizon, they don't come around very often and we've got to take, we've got to have two hands out ready to catch, basically, is what I keep telling my clubs because if, if we're not ready and we're not advocating for our game now, you know, there's no better time. So tell us where Daughters and Dads fits into this. For those who've never heard of it before, what is Daughters and Dads football? Tell us what it's all about. So the program came about with alarming statistics around girls in sport and physical activity. So Professor Philip Morgan researched from, from the University of Newcastle that 90% of girls aren't meeting physical activity guidelines and haven't mastered fundamental movement skills by the time they finish primary school. And the beauty of Daughters and Dads football is that you can be new to football, you can have played for a number of years, but we're trying to create that safer, supportive introduction to the sport. You've got your, your dad with you the whole time and a dad in daughters and dads football is a significant male role model. So it can be any father figure, a stepfather, grandfather, uncle, trusted family friend. And I think that's the beauty of this program is that you really can just learn about football um, and do it in, in a safe space. Club culture and environment is is a big thing that I have spoken to every guest on this podcast about. This seems to be one of those programs that is a hands-on culture changer as far as shifting the mindsets, particularly of the dads and the clubs that the dads might play at or coach at or just be participants at. What are some of the things that you're noticing having administered this program over its uh, journey so far? Yeah, I think that we we get to tap into the gender bias that, it, that exists and the challenges that girls face in society and in sport. And I think when when the clubs are on, bo- are on board with the messaging and to see the impact that it's having on families within their community, once they've had a program, they just want to keep having more. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a really rewarding program. How many, do you have numbers on how many actual players uh, this is, currently being implemented with at the moment like what's your what's your actual data catchment of people yeah so at the moment we have 120 participants in term four but since we've had the pilot program in term four 2022 we've had over a thousand participants and 40 percent of them have actually been new to football and in this term alone 50 percent and i think that just off the back of the fifa women's world cup you can really see the excitement of girls who are already in football and still wanting to play, but also girls that are thinking, hey, hey, Dad, I, I want to try football. So you can go back over things you might have already mentioned uh, to emphasise the point here, if I'm asking over old ground. What is groundbreaking about this program, especially given your background, both as an elite sports person yourself, but also having been part of the sports administration apparatus, what's the groundbreaking things here that weren't being done before this program came in? So this program isn't just a typical football program. It's so unique. It's it's addressing, as I said, the gender biases and the, the structure of the program. So the first session is a dads-only workshop where we're addressing the powerful influence that dads have on their daughters' lives, the 
challenges that daughters face, but also evidence-based coaching tips to keep their daughters engaged in sport. And the reason this is so important is because less than a third of fathers believe they have a unique and independent influence on their daughters' lives. And then so following that dads-only session, we have eight weekly sessions with daughters and dads. And the I guess the main part of the program as well is we have empowerment sessions each week. And that's where we're focusing on social-emotional well-being aspects. So persistence, resilience, bravery, critical thinking skills. And this is so important to live full and active lives. And we hope that when the daughters are equipped with this knowledge and these tools, that they won't be a statistic and drop out of sport like 81% of girls are dropping out of sport by the age of 14 and never returning. I want to just I want to ask you then were, what were the challenges that you and your teammates at that age faced? Did you notice that a lot of your friends and teammates were falling out of sport or was the incentive in the carrot of being, you know, maybe a state level player with aspirations of playing for your country enough to keep you personally hooked where maybe a social participant who's got school, who's got maybe a part-time job, other priorities in life might have otherwise walked away from any competitive sport, not just football. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I actually grew up in a small country town, Scone, and my dad and my brother, that's how I got into cricket and why I still play sport. But I always used to think I was a bit strange going through school. I loved PE, couldn't wait to, to get out, to be active, because a lot of my friends didn't want to do that and I didn't understand why. But I think I was fortunate to be equipped with the tools and the knowledge to be like, sport is so good for you to keep playing. But I, I used to get comments all the time when I was playing, oh, you know, you, you just got out by a girl or you throw like a girl. But I think because my dad and my brother played such a big influence, played a big part in my in my life that it didn't really bother me. But other people, that can really take a toll on your confidence. It's like, oh, well, if I throw like a girl, am I, am I not doing the right thing? Like, why can't I throw just like me? Um, and I think that's why, you know, in the program we speak about gender glasses and that's the critical thinking of thinking, oh, is that true or false? Is that fair or unfair? Because comments like that, you run like a girl, can be really... Um, yeah, insulting when it shouldn't be because we're just running, we're just doing what we're doing, that's that's who we are. Um, so I think that's why this program is just groundbreaking to try and keep daughters and girls in sport. You mentioned the, the scientific element of it and that inspiration for it with the, uh, the professor, but what's the sort of the stated goal over one year, over five years? Have they actually projected how big they want this to grow or is it really more taking the data of the original rollout and then making decisions based on that? I mean, what feedback are you providing to the program so that, you know, people go, oh, remember, you know, Kirsten, she used to work at Football New South Wales, now she's off working for Government Department XYZ. But then the program and the IP maybe doesn't necessarily leave with the people that are running it right now? How does it get, how does it, to use the word legacy, how does it stay, how does it continue to be implemented and what is key reporting to make sure that if the program's a success, it continues to run? Yeah, I think sustainability is such a big part and as Alex mentioned before, storytelling. This program has so many amazing stories to tell and share because it might not, I guess, get the reach or recognition that it deserves because it is so unique Um, and that's why you know, the facilitators play such an important role in ensuring that these programs keep going and they have quality. Um, But also, yeah, I think having the associations on board, like in the Central Coast alone, we've already had three programs there. So to have that support from the associations that are backing the program, the community, that is how this program is going to have a long-lasting impact and continue. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you touched there on on the facilitators. We're fortunate to have had, yeah, two or three programs at Plume Park now, and it's great to have it in a football setting as well, I think, which helps. Um, the facilitators that have done it on the Central Coast, Jody, she's an absolute superstar. Um, how do you think, or how do you get the next generation of, of facilitators, and is there an option for people if they want to get involved to potentially facilitate this and help grow the program? Yeah, absolutely. We, we're lucky with the accreditation process um, for facilitators. It's, it's all online now, um, so it's an after-hours four hours um but it's, it's such an investment and i think a lot of facilitators actually realize that when they do the program like gerard and jody from the central coast messaged me the other day about pinkification because now they've learned so much they apply they can just see it in their everyday life um so i think when you have when you have these fantastic facilitators they're actually the ones that are spreading the word through the community as well which is so important um but yeah, everyone can get involved. It's, t- it's all over our website um, to apply for a facilitator and we hope that we can continue that growth of the quality facilitators. Let's talk uptake then because you've mentioned running the program with Central Coast Football, but how many of the associations, I assume you've made contact with all of them, but uh, where is the program running? Where are you trying to expand to? What's your capacity to expand? Uh, give us sort of your projections of where it's going, maybe by the end of this year and then maybe through the winter season uh, in 2024? Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment we have five programs in football in New South Wales. So we have one at the Central Coast, at Linfield, Glenwood, Strathfield and at Thoreau. And this afternoon I'm actually heading to Mossvale, um, so in the Highlands Association. We've got a, a come and try there with 25 families. Um, but the goal of Daughters and Dads is that we would like to have a program at each association to, to provide to their members. Um, I think there might be a, a lack of information at times and not understanding the real, the true benefit of this program. I think it's so great that Alex is here because he's seen that firsthand. Um, but we would absolutely love to have a program at, at each association and that is the goal. Um, we have funding until the end of uh, in June 2024. So past that, we still want to be ensuring that we have facilitators accredited and trained in each association to continue the legacy that this program is having. Question for both of you then, because when you're talking to local or state government um, or local councils about you know the social benefits of playing sport and football as that vehicle, how much how much more value does something like this add where you can not just say it's not just about running around on the weekend, it's not just about, you know, fitness, physical activity and so forth. You can actually point to the initiatives that are being taken to actually affect societal change here. I think inherently we know, you know, day-to-day running of the code how much benefit, and we've seen it over the last few years when football wasn't around as much as it should have been through COVID, et cetera, the social benefit of football uh, and the fabric of the community that you're involved with, whether it be your own team, your own club, you know, your own committee structure that you're in and you're talking to every day. So programs like this really tap into that. I mean, the, some of the participants that we've seen on the Central Coast, I've seen, you know, rusted on footballers that I've known for 20 years that are involved in this program. And I've seen dads and daughters that have come in, you know, almost off the street that you know are interested in getting involved in the program and football's just the mechanism in which they can do so and both have enjoyed it equally right um so to be able to have this and the storytelling aspect keeps coming up but uh to be able to have equal you know satisfaction from a participant that's been in football all their lives and a participant that is fresh to football is is outstanding are we, are we at the cutting edge here? Are other sports doing this? Are other countries other than Australia doing this? What do you? What can you tell us to put it in a, a bit more of a broader context of all of sport? Yeah, so 
Football is the third sports-specific version of the program. So Daughters and Dads Active and Empowered was established in 2014 and they've had programs um, in the UK through Daughters and Dads and also in South Africa um, and in Austria. So it is it is growing, um, but it's I think because it, it is unique, we just need that support, the funding, the storytelling so other countries can really get on board with it. But we for the sport-specific versions, it's aligned with the World Cup. So there's a cricket, basketball, and now football. Um, not to put you on the spot, but when you talk about the storytelling, have you got any anecdotes or any first-hand experiences that you've seen that have stayed with you as sort of a, a really job-affirming moment of this is why I go to work, this is what is motivating me to come in and keep doing this program. Have you got anything that sticks in the memory as a particular highlight? There are too many to tell. I've been fortunate to actually deliver some of the programs. I think one that really caught my mind, as I mentioned when I, I played cricket and I used to get a lot of comments, we were talking about if, if someone said to you, you kick like a girl, what would you say? And a, a six-year-old girl in the back of the classroom, she said, she said, thank you, I know that I can kick really far. And I think we're really changing the perception of what girls think that they can do and know that they can do. Um, and another one is we had a, an 11-year-old girl who hadn't done a lot of team sport and her dad thought that she'd really missed the boat. And she, in the feedback survey, the dad said, my daughter never used to play in sport at school, particularly against the boys. She always had that fear. But since the program, she's literally coming back every afternoon saying, oh, Dad, I did, I did football today. Oh, I, I did cricket today. So I think there's just there's so many stories and it makes me so passionate about this program because I really wish I had this program when I was growing up. I was very fortunate that my dad is still so involved and will travel from Scone to Sydney every Sunday to watch me play cricket. But not a lot of... Like, not, not everyone has that. As, as I mentioned, less than a third of fathers really have that, um, you know, the purpose and, and involvement for, like, for their daughters because they don't believe they have that unique influence. So for any associations, uh, any clubs that have heard this chat, have heard this conversation, have heard the case study of how it's going at Central Coast Football, uh, what are the, the contact points through Football New South Wales that they need to keep in mind if they want to actually, you know, they might have heard, hey, the clock's ticking on June next year. We want to get involved in this. We want to make sure we're part of it. So what steps do they need to take from here, having maybe heard or heard about the program or heard this conversation today? Yeah, absolutely. So if they just go onto the Football New South Wales website, there's the Daughters and Dads section, and there is a job form that you can register your interest to host a program but also to become a facilitator my details are there i am as i said so passionate about this program really want every association to experience it so please get in touch with me because i'll do everything i can um, to ensure that we can have one at their association kirsten smith stay with us for the final segment but thank you for the rundown on daughters and dads thank you so much you are listening to the football new south wales community podcast we'll be back to wrap it up with a few more big picture talking points on the other side of this break Welcome back to the Football New South Wales Community Podcast. Uh, my co-host for this episode is the CEO of Central Coast Football, Alex Bergen, and also from Daughters and Dads Football, Kirsten Smith. And we're just going to talk uh, about a few big picture talking points to bring this home because, Alex, after the uh, establishment of Daughters and Dads with uh, Central Coast Football, you do have a new women's football strategy. Um, tell us about its establishment and tell us about what's impl being implemented and some of its objectives. Yeah, so a lot like other associations um, and leveraging the goodwill of women's football at the moment and the Women's World Cup and the Legacy Fund, uh, we 
and the Central Coast have gone through a bit of a review of our competition structures and everything to do with women's football. So over the last 12 months, we established a women's football steering committee made up of representatives from around the grounds, coaches, players, club administrators. Uh, we've got half a dozen uh, that have been meeting with clubs. We've run a number of forums. We've run surveys um, and a few you know, workshops with, with coaching and refereeing um, to establish sort of our future vision for women's football on the Central Coast. Uh, that's led to a significant report, 20-page report, into where we want to be and how we want to get there uh, and a number of changes that we're going to implement for 2024 and beyond. So uh, tell us about some of the key recommendations then and what you and your team will be working to implement. Some of the big ones uh, are around the competition structure for our Women's Premier League competition. So we're going to be reintroducing our Women's Division 1 competition. Uh, in 2023, we only had seven clubs uh, out of our 24 participating in a Women's Premier competition. Uh, so the ability to to bring that back to a single team structure, reintroduce the Women's Division 1 competition. We had a club meeting last night and it looks like those seven clubs are going to jump up to 16 clubs that are going to be participating next year. So the ability for, for every girl to play within their own club at the highest level on the Central Coast is what we're aiming for. Have representation from all our clubs at the highest level uh, will be a great step next year. And in conjunction with that, uh, it's not just players that are involved in this in this women's football strategy. It's coaching and refereeing as well. So we're going to be implementing a, a junior development program specifically for girls. We're going to run three different sessions next year and hopefully get over 300 girls through extra training ho hosted at Plume Park by our coach education manager, Peter Preston. Uh, we're also implementing uh, girls refereeing elite panel. Uh, so we have uh, 28 female referees on the Central Coast, which is is underrepresented in our refereeing ranks so we're hoping to double those numbers next year and throughout specialist training from our coach educator for our referee educator Danny Horstead uh, we're going to hopefully get some elite female referees through the panel as well. Just on, on the coaching question because uh, Central Coast Mariners are now the only A-League women's team with a female head coach there isn't a single Australian female head coach in the entire competition so when we talk about coaching, it, it's not just a matter of getting coaches accredited. It's not just a matter of, of having them uh, coaching at clubs. It's about actually demonstrating the pathway and what it might take to coach at that elite level. Um, are, are you feeling any sort of a pinch at grassroots level about we need more women in leadership and coaching positions? Otherwise, it won't ever be reflected at the, the top of the game? Yeah, absolutely. It's an untapped market for us in coaching. Uh, we currently sit at about 15% of our coaches are female coaches. Uh, in the in the Premier League, that's, that's even less. Uh, so we're looking to certainly up those numbers and have female coaches, both of the female game and of mixed and male game, uh, represented to where they should be. Uh, we're looking to double our number of female coaches next year. So from 115, we're trying to get to 230 female coaches next year. We're going to run a few programs to try and boost that number, create a community around coaching, a female coach mentor program, uh, and hopefully that Sean and Emily from the Mariners can be involved in that as, uh, as representatives of the, the very top level on the Central Coast as well. Kirsten, uh, I, I know that you're working right now with like sort of hands-on generational change for a future generation, but whether this is uh, within your remit of expertise or not, 
What has to change, do you think, so that we're not waiting 20 years for the girls that are doing Daughters and Dads now to grow up and become the female coaches of the future? What, what do you think, you know, if you had maybe uh, some blue sky thinking about what actually needs to change to see a greater level of representation of women in both club administrator but also particularly coaching uh, leadership roles? Yeah, I think it's break, breaking down those barriers, as, as we've been saying. But I think just partnering females together and knowing that they can do it um, that support we, we have a lot of representation of females now in, in football New South Wales as Alex said 15% of coaches but hopefully that number continues to grow I think you just need those pioneers in the sport to lead the way and really if, if she can see it she can be it one thing I wanted to circle back to was your uh, Premier League increasing its number of participating teams. And, and I guess how much of that is literally participant-driven with players coming back to the sport or wanting to be retained in the sport? And how much of that is club-driven with their hands-on recruiting or retaining their younger age groups that have come through and stopping the turnover and attrition rate so that by the time they age out of uh, age-grade football, they're ready to play seniors? Yeah, absolutely. Up until now, uh, girls have had to change clubs if they wanted to continue that pathway. So from our under 18 competition if they wanted to keep playing at the highest level there wasn't that opportunity with only seven out of our 24 clubs being having a team in that premier league competition so the ability for a local girl that's at Avoca or carry on or whatever club that it may be to continue that pathway and still play at the highest level and be able to stay at their club obviously you know the time and effort that our clubs put into retaining players throughout that junior journey uh, shouldn't just be lost when they when they age out of that top level so this structure will hopefully engage all our clubs and empower them to keep their players all the way through. One last one for both of you then, and I I have raised this question with other guests on the podcast, but uh, from what I understand, this will be fresh to both of you, this question. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I haven't told you the answers to the quiz uh, before I give it. Um, How important is it not just to have role models like Sam Kerr, not just Courtney Vine now, who's back in the A-League, but also um, when you think about what a club looks like, that first impression when you walk through the door. I always bring it back to some of the clubs that I would regularly commentate NPL for, particularly when I was in Melbourne, about would I ever expect to see a poster of Sam Kerr on the wall of this club when I walk through the door? Um, how important is having those those very identifiable role models and sort of figures in the game as they can be the smallest gesture, but sometimes it can make a profound difference to perception of your organisation? How important is it to have individuals that you can actually pinpoint as this is you can be who you can see. I think it's the first touch point and it's it's so important. They have that sense of belonging. They have something to aspire to, role models, as you said. Yeah, I think it, it's so important um, in, in the female space particularly. Given that you, your knowledge of other sports, both of you, I mean, the AFLW's been great for footy. Cricket is, has, as I said, been the market leader. Is football perhaps in the most enviable position that we have the biggest names now? We've got perhaps the most recognisable faces in order to sell the game with. I I think so. And even like Courtney Vine, for instance, I was literally watching her on, on the news the other day and she's at a school and everyone is just around a pitch just watching her play with, with other teammates. And that's boys and girls, juniors at a primary school. Everyone knows their faces and I think that they have such an amazing story to tell and hopefully create that that legacy. 
Yeah, and to talk about legacy and to bring it all the way back to storytelling as well. All of these uh, females have started somewhere and they started in junior footy. So our job is to, you know, for the next 20 years, the next World Cup, Women's World Cup that's hosted in Australia, hopefully we can now through whether it be a dads and daughters program or uh, a young girl that gets involved because a coast kickback is an option for them. Maybe that's the next Matilda that can come all the way through. I certainly hope that is the case, and thank you for uh, tying it up very nicely back to the initiatives you're running. Alex Bergen, Central Coast Football CEO, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Kirsten Smith, keep up the great work with Dads and Daughters Football, and uh, all the best uh, in the run to the Christmas break and into the new year. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be back with the Football New South Wales Community Podcast in one month. However, in the meantime, you can catch up on earlier episodes and also the Kickoff Competitions Podcast for Football New South Wales. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Big thanks to our guests. We'll speak to you next time. Listener.